Once upon a time, not 2,600 years ago, but much more recent. And can you hear me okay? Is this volume all right? Uh, I had been ordained as a Zen monk about um, a year. And I was practicing very diligently and earnestly, and I hit this wall. And I remember it was this realization that was quite painful at the time, this really the stark realization that my real diligent practice was being fueled by this deep sense of unworthiness, a deep sense of lack, kind of that, that theme that something is wrong with me. And it had a particular dynamic to it. You know, it would be the, the dynamic of really wanting to be, you know, whatever it was for that day or that week of the perfectly mindful person, or the, the person with great samadhi. And then there might be an experience of strong mindfulness or maybe of the heart being open in some kind of manner. But then, as I'm sure all of you have experienced, it would go away. And then there would be that challenge there, the mind being just continually lost in thought and not being able to settle it in any kind of way. Or maybe a, a big bout of aversion arising. And then, boom, I was back in that world of unworthiness, that world of there's something wrong with me. And then, right, and then I'd climb back out of that you know, there'd be experience of strong samadhi, the heart opening. And then, boom, another difficult experience. Something's wrong with me. That feeling, even if it wasn't the thought, the, the underlying feeling of unworthiness. Climb out again. It was just a cycle of dukkha. Maybe not a cycle, maybe a going back and forth or this entanglement that was there. In some ways, I'm really grateful for getting into Vipassana because it, it's not like it took it away when I first started practicing Vipassana deeply, but it clarified this. You know, that there was a <clears throat> dynamic of suffering in how I was approaching this practice, how I was approaching, you can say, even re retreat practice in particular. And maybe you can relate to this. Maybe there's sometimes a notion, maybe, you know, this notion of maybe if I practice hard, I can stop being a person who feels like they're not good enough and finally become someone who feels like they're good enough all the time. Someone, the underlying message of that, someone who's perfect. Wouldn't that be sweet? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I can even, you can still feel sometimes the tinges of hope, right? Well, maybe, maybe this is what it's all about, huh? And this is the suffering of becoming, trying to become somebody. I'm, I'm giving one particular flavor, and this is the particular flavor I'd like to share with you, but, it, but I also want to mention that it can be quite subtle, and this is where it gets tricky, because it can be also infused just with the sense of, I am somebody who, if I practice, will finally become somebody who is perfectly enlightened. 
And actually that even can be situated upon a sense of lack as well. And it can be quite subtle. So that's what I'd like to share with you tonight is reflections on this dynamic and hopefully ways to navigate this, ways to wake up to it and hopefully ways to become free of it. And I want to begin by situating a little bit of, of hearkening back to maybe a little bit of, of Winnie's last talk or what I was talking about when I was talking about practicing for oneself and others of how often this feeling, if you can relate to this, I don't want to assume that everyone can relate to this, this feeling of unworthiness, we inherit it, don't we? You can sometimes see the lines of it within family or dominant society around the world, around us, this lineage of it. And the, again, the reason I name the lineage of it, because it also is uh, a reminder that it's also the potential of the lineage of healing, that of bringing freedom around that for the world that we live in. There's this wonderful poem by the poet Billy Collins that I think expresses this. And the title of the poem is My Favorite 17-Year-Old High School Girl. It's really about these messages. And I want to set the stage for you. If you imagine, here's this young teenage girl, 17 years old, and she's maybe sitting at the, ta- at the table of her parents. or And there, maybe one of her caregivers, maybe a mother or father, is saying this to her as she's sitting there. So if you imagine that, here's this parent talking to their 17-year-old daughter. And they begin, do you realize that if you had started building the Parthenon on the day you were born, you would all be all done in only one more year? <laughs> of course, you couldn't have done all that all alone. So never mind. You're fine just being yourself. You're loved just for being you. But did you know that at your age, Judy Garland was pulling down $150,000 a picture? (laughs) Joan of Arc was leading the French army to victory and Blaise Pascal had cleaned up his room. No, wait, (laughs) I mean he had invented the calculator. Of course, there'll be time for all that later in your life after you come out of your room and begin to blossom or at least pick up all of your socks. For some reason, I keep remembering that Lady Jane Grey was Queen of England when she was only 15. But then she was beheaded, so never mind her as a role model. (laughs) A few centuries later, when he was your age, Franz Schubert was doing the dishes for his family, but that did not keep him from composing two symphonies, four operas, and two complete masses as a youngster. But of course, that was in Austria at the height of romantic lyricism, not here in the suburbs of Cleveland. (laughs) Frankly, who cares if Annie Oakley was a crack shot at 15 or if Maria Callas debuted as Tosca at 17? We think you're special just being you. (laughs) Playing with your food and staring into space. By the way, I lied about Schubert doing the dishes, but that didn't mean he never helped out around the house. (laughs) 
Right, so there can be these subtle messages <laughs> around not feeling enough. And I also want to point out the collective dimension to this. And I, I do want to say I apologize for being U.S. centric. It's just the place I know. But in, in this country, so much of this collective dimension of never having enough, it fueling consumerism, it fueling really the corporate world, this, this push to always having quarterly earnings, never enough. In this country, never safe enough. Right? We, have, we have the largest military in the world and it's ever expanding because we could never be safe enough. We have the highest incarceration rate in, this, in the world, in this country. And how it, it brutally is entangled with issues of race and class, of how incarceration works in this country. It's the same pull, the same kind of momentum of becoming the attempt to become safer and safer and safer or having more and more and more because there's always a sense of never enough. And as I mentioned, this can also be quite subtle. And I want to share with you a passage from Ajahn Sumedho talking about this. I think this is from the book, uh, The Island which is an anthology. He said, when I started practicing meditation, I felt I was somebody who was very confused and I wanted to get out of this confusion and get rid of my problems and become someone who was not confused, someone who was a clear thinker, someone who would maybe one day become awake. That was the impetus that got me going in the direction of Buddhist meditation and monastic life. So by, but by then, by reflecting on this position that I am somebody who needs to do something to awaken, I began to see that it was just a created condition. It really was the condition of becoming. So quite subtle. And it is deep. And this is how often we think about the, the spiritual path that I Start over here, maybe on the right-hand side here, and then with more practice, maybe as I do three-month retreats and I continue to do them, eventually I get closer and closer to awakening over here. And it's the story of, you could say, of early Buddhism. It's a great story, so I don't want to discount the story. It's a, I love the story. <laughs> it's, just that, it's just that the mind gets entangled with it. It doesn't hold it correctly. It thinks it's about all about creating a self in some kind of manner. So it's all about how we hold such a story. Kind of like the image that the Buddha gives in the Dhammapada. He gives this image of kusa grass. Kusa grass is actually was a grass used in a lot of sacred rites. And, uh, you know, especially with wild glass, grass, if you hold it tightly and then you pull it, there's, your hand is going to get so easily cut. And if the hand is open, 
and holding it so differently, it's very, uh, quite differently. So much of what I'm sharing with you is just, how can we hold this differently? And become aware of this quality of becoming. And not only that, don't worry, we'll get to the good stuff. <laughs> Just, you know, I, I'm a Buddhist teacher, so I love talking about the bad stuff. <laughs> but I think what's so striking is that it does infuse our sense of what freedom is. It, it infuses how we practice, as I was sharing with you, how I was practicing, but also awakening. For example, the, I think he's a, the psychologist, uh, Jack Engler, who helped a lot with uh, the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies and was at Harvard University, wrote an article about how there can be these misconceptions around awakening. And he actually gives these, a whole list of 10, and this is the, the first one he gives. He says, the, the misconception of it being a quest for perfection and invulnerability. He says, this is how he explains it. He says, awakening can be imagined as a heaven-sent embodiment of a core Western narcissistic ideal. A state of personal perfection from which all our badness, all our faults and defilements have been expelled. A state in which we finally become self-sufficient, not needing anyone or anything above criticism and reproach and above all, immune to further hurts or disappointments. Practice can be motivated in part by this secret wish to be special, if not superior. Awakening will finally elicit the acknowledgement and admiration that has been lacking in our lives. And he goes on to say, because narcissistic issues are so pervasive in development, basically this can run quite deep. You know, on the surface, it sounds so good, hoping that that really is what awakening is about. But that's just delusion. That's pasting this quest for perfection onto something that I think is much more profound. I think Andrea mentioned this, just the sense of, in some ways we can't envision freedom, we can't have a concept for it because it's, it, it defies that in some way. This is a, a deeper freedom than these things that we might be hoping for unskillfully. I want to briefly tie this whole dynamic into another teaching of the Buddha that, that fits around this, 
this whole dynamic of becoming and it's this the, the teaching of dependent origination and I'm really not going to go into detail of it but just give a, a piece of a classical part of it the dependent origination namely being a, a teaching about these conditions noticing the conditions and the the explanation of the conditions that lead to our suffering and also the conditions that that lead to our awakening Surely you could say this description, or you could even say the story of, just in this context, the birth of dukkha, the birth of suffering. Maybe just as a, a side note, there is a, uh, a Buddhist scholar, uh, Joanna Jurowitz. I think she's from the uh, University of Warsaw in Poland. And she makes this um, interesting theory that that this whole teaching of dependent origination arises out of um, the Buddha making a play on this Vedic myth around the creation of a self, self being this great thing in, in Vedic cosmology. And then the Buddha twisting that around and, and using it as, as seeing it as the creation, the story about how suffering arises and how awakening arises. So within this, this unfolding, I just want to uh, share with you a few of these links around becoming. And I invite you to, to hold this. The reason I, I mention uh, Joanna Jurowitz is to, uh, to hold it as a story rather than as a, a scientific explanation, but as a poetic story of, of something that we can sense into, into the unfolding of our experience. And it's this unfolding of contact, fasa, Vedna, feeling tone, the pleasant or unpleasant or neutral aspect of experience. These conditions are there. And then when those conditions are there, it can give rise to craving and, and clinging. And then becoming, bhava. And then birth, birth into a self. And then that self dies. Of course, I'm just giving one, one possible description of this. I think there's many. How does this fit into this feeling of not enough? And I, I think there's, there can be many different descriptions. So I just want to share, share two, depending upon, you can say, the Vedna, the aspect of it is. There can be the ex, some contact. It can be contact of the attention resting with the breath for a long period of time. And then that, that experience is very, very pleasant. So we have contact and we have Vedna. We could call this samadhi. And there it is. And then, then the craving can crop in. Mm, yeah, this is good. And then the clinging. Wow, this is really good. Let me get me some more of this. This is what it's all about. I'm on my way. And then becoming. Might not even be a thought. Sometimes a thought, the feeling. I'm, I'm a good meditator. I'm, I'm on my way. Yeah. I don't know about anybody else sitting on this retreat, but me. <laughs> and that's when birth feels good. And then there's death. Oh, I don't even have to explain that, right? You know that one. There it is, unworthiness, the sense of lack. I'm, something's wrong with me. Just, just goes to show. Here's another experience to to point that out. And we could in, just as easily 
you know, describe it as the opposite of, of the contact being unpleasant, the mind lost in a thought storm, the Vedana being unpleasant. And then the craving, the craving in the sense of not wanting it. Damn it, I don't want this. How do I get back to the concentrated place? What was that? What was the thing I had to do? And then I really don't want it. And then there's birth of a particular being. I totally suck at this. There I am. And the birth is painful. And we're just waiting for death to happen. Because <laughs> that's where the relief is. But hopefully you can hear in this, there's, there's the entanglement. It's just going back and forth. And this, really, this can be an entire retreat. This is retreat. <laughs> it's the wrestling with becoming. And this is the, the tangle of it. That's how the, the Buddha describes it. Ananda, that this generation has become like a tangled skein, like a knotted ball of thread, like matted reeds and rushes. And this is he's describing someone who does not understand the Dhamma, does not understand dependent origination. Understand in the sense of the visceral sense, not just intellectually. So this is how this can unfold. And again, I, I, I can't emphasize this, well, actually two things. One of the reasons I wanted to point out this dependent origination is because what I noticed, especially with this feeling of unworthiness, is it can feel like it is my default, like it's always there. But I don't know if you've ever had that feeling. Maybe it's not, ex didn't have an extreme feeling, that, but it can just feel like this is my existence. It's just kind of pervasive. And I think the fascinating thing about being on retreat is seeing that it is a kind of arising, that it increases or decreases that feeling, and sometimes it's not there. I think that's the brilliance of what the Buddha is pointing out, is that these are, these are arisings of contact, of experience. And then the mind can generalize, but it is something fluid. And at the same time, I want to re-emphasize that to remember the wholesome, these wholesome and pleasant experiences are not the problem. Savoring them is not the problem. Having aspiration, having the aspiration for awakening or having the aspiration for awakening for ourselves and all beings is not the problem. It's our relationship to it. It's how we're holding it, how we're holding the kusa grass, how we're holding these sacred aspects of the path. Instead of getting them entangled like that tangled ball of yarn with not enough, with becoming. So what's the the road to freedom or as the Buddha says who can untangle the tangle how to do this I'd actually like to utilize a, a poem to help express this this is a poem uh, her name is uh, Lisa Lowitz and it's entitled Waiting just to back up, I think for me, because sometimes when I'm lost and not enough, or I'm not enough, I'm, I'm waiting for that time where I am enough. That's how she describes it. 
She says, you keep waiting for something to happen. The thing that lifts you out of yourself, catapults you into doing all the things you put off, the great things you're meant to do in your life, but somehow never quite get to. You keep waiting for the planets to shift, the new moon to bring news, the universe to align, something to give. Meanwhile, the pile of papers, the laundry, the dishes, the job, it all stacks up while you keep hoping for some miracle to blast down upon you, scattering the piles to the winds. Sometimes you lie in bed terrified of your life. Sometimes you laugh at the privilege of awakening. But all the while, life goes on in its messy way. And then you turn 40 or 50 or 60 or even 70. And some part of you realizes you are not alone and you find signs of this in the animal kingdom. When a snake sheds its skin, its eyes glaze over. It slinks under a rock, not wanting to be touched. And when caterpillar turns to butterfly, if the pupa is brushed, it will die. And when the bird taps its beak hungrily against the egg, it's because the thing is too small, too small, and it needs to break out. And midwife walks you into that wisdom that this is what transformation looks like, the mess of it, the tapping at the walls of your life, the yearning and the writhing and the pushing until one day, one day you emerge from the wreck, embracing both the immense dawn and the dusk of the body, glistening, beautiful, just as you are. This is what transformation looks like, doesn't it? The mess of it. And here we are engaging in this practice, just touching, just as you are, just touching this moment, just as it is. In the mess of it, out in those fields of cultivation with the weeds and the bugs and the storms. And I think that is the gateway into something different than becoming, is it's just the scene of it in the midst of the mess of it. The cycle, the back and forth that I was talking about. What's it like, just that simple thing of seeing the dynamic for what it is. Oh, becoming, becoming is like this. Interesting. It might not stop it, but what I notice is there's a space around it. Oh, yep, that's what the mind does. That's its tendency. To do that. 
And this is what Ajahn Sumedho says around this, this quote I gave you when he, he, he noticed this created condition as, I am somebody who needs to do something in order to become awakened in the future. And he says, just by recognizing this as an assumption the mind created, that which is aware knows it as something created out of ignorance, out of not understanding. And when we see and recognize this fully, we stop creating the assumptions, or you could say we stop being as entangled in such assumptions. So it's just the, the labeling of that. And sometimes I'll use that label, oh, becoming, there it is. And again, we're here to still put forth effort, this willingness to be present, the willingness to show up, but to loosen it from the strangle, the entanglement with becoming. And in terms of becoming free of this, I, I also want to share not only the practice that we're doing, but ways of holding this practice, offering other stories or other narratives that can give us a different sense of this practice unfolding. This, this other story that I want to share with you, I'll show you a couple stories, comes from the Lotus Sutra. And I want to acknowledge the Lotus Sutra is it is not in the Theravada canon by, canon by any means. It's a Mahayana text. But I want to point out that those practitioners who were reading the, the, the Lotus Sutra and were inspired by the Lotus Sutra were just like you and me. They, they felt like they were following the words of the historical Buddha. And it's not that radical of a shift compared to our shift. You know, here so often modern Buddhism is influenced by things like, you know, thinking that the Buddha is scientific and rational and is a psychological genius, which is great. You know, I'm, I'm a modern. But, it's, but the, the understanding the Buddha in the context of the Lotus Sutra is, is no more wild and crazy than that. They're practitioners like you and me. And I also share this because some of you have at, at times have, have shared with me that your taste of what it is to be aware is more like this process. And I want to honor that, your felt experience of the unfolding of this practice. So, once upon a time. Once upon a time, this person of great nobility, this mother, this mother of great nobility, she has her son. And by some strange circumstance, <clears throat> as the son at a very young age gets separated from his mother and ends up living in other countries, wandering around, really barely making it, seeking food and work and shelter and then wandering on to other places to, to, to seek food, work and shelter. And after many, many years of this, 
unbeknownst to the son. The son doesn't realize this. He, he enters into the country of his mother, the kingdom of his mother he enters into. And as he's walking through the streets, his mother catches sight of him, her long lost son, and recognizes him. And she's so excited. And so she sends a messenger out to contact him and bring him home to his true home, this, this life of nobility. But what happens is, is, is that when this messenger comes up to him, his first feeling is fear. His first feeling is, I must have done something wrong. <laughs> this can't be right. And he runs away. Maybe you can relate to this, right? But there's something wrong with me. This isn't right. They're, they're, they're out to get me. And then his mother realizes, ah, this is, this is what the situation is, is he doesn't have the capacity to take in this realization that his birthright is this nobility. She doesn't have that capacity. So what she does is he, she sends out another messenger and offers him a job to shovel dirt on the property there. And she very skillfully disguises herself in the clothing of another work person. And, and they start to, over many, many years, start to have this relationship. So the son can get more and more comfortable with his mother. And then finally, after many, many years before she dies, and he's grown so accustomed to her, it was then, only then, that she reveals to him, you are actually my son. And this this is your true inheritance, the fullness of this nobility. This is your true home. And then the son can see what was always his, what was actually his birthright from the very beginning. And maybe that's all we're doing here. We're just, we're just finding our birthright. That birthright of our true home of being awake, of being aware. Maybe it's not so much starting over here on the right and then traversing, and then over, ending up over here on the left. It's just resting in a different place. Have you noticed your mind takes all kinds of things to be our true home that really aren't? Thinking. Thinking's a big one, right? All those stories. Whew. The tumultuous emotions. It's not like we have to get rid of those, but uh, the, the home of being awake and being aware is so different. There's such a different feeling to it. Not becoming somebody, just resting somewhere differently. How do you get a taste of this in this practice that we're doing? More of a visceral taste of the story from the Lotus Sutra.
think one is to use this teaching again from Ajahn Sumedho, from the Thai Forest tradition. And it's getting a feeling sense that when we're practicing, we can have a feeling sense that what's going on is it's just the Buddha knowing the Dharma. And I want to explain this a little bit. So for example, right now, this experience that you're having right now is just the Buddha knowing hearing, or you could say Kuan Yin knowing hearing, or Prajna Paramita, whatever resonates for you. The whole idea that I am knowing hearing, that I am aware of hearing, is crazy. <laughs> that's just a concept, that's just a construction. The activity that's being aware right now, the activity of awareness that's happening right now, is just the same activity of the Buddha, the same activity of Kuan Yin. It's just that knowing. There's nothing different about it. So it's your choice. I mean, you can take the deluded view, I'm knowing hearing right now. Or a sense of the Buddha is knowing the activity of hearing right now. Can you get a sense of the feeling sense of that with the activity of the sound of my voice coming and going? That's what it is. Kuan Yin, knowing sound arising and passing away. Prajna Paramita, knowing sound arising and passing right now. And sometimes it has the feeling, that activity of being aware, of not being touched by suffering. The subjective experience of that. And if there is a knowing of the sound coming and going, we could say that there's the knowing of the Dhamma, the knowing of impermanence right now. The Buddha knowing the Dhamma right now in this moment. It's happening right now. It's just not, it's just that there's not the capacity to fully embrace that. There's a fear when that messenger comes and tells you that. We run the other way. You gotta shovel a lot of dirt for a long time. Because we just don't believe it. It's delusion. Same practice. It's just the knowing, the knowing of experience unfolding. Maybe Kuan Yin knowing experience unfolding in this very moment. So another step for dispelling maybe some of these notions can get, that can get so entangled with becoming, namely the notion that we start over here on the right and then we end up over here on the left somewhere when we're fully awakened. So I'd like to share with you another description, another story of practice, a practitioner just like you and me. 
13th century Zen master Dogen. He suffered just like you and me. He lost his parents at a very young age. I think his mother when he was three or four and then his father at six or seven. Filled then, filled with this desire to practice the Dhamma. Takes the really the dangerous journey in the 13th century from Japan over to China to find really the heart of this practice. And he comes back having another sense of what's going on when we sit in meditation. So I want to share with you, again, just a, just a story, but a striking one. He says, the meditation I speak of is not learning meditation. Rather, it is the simple, simply the easy and pleasant practice of a Buddha. It is the practice realization of totally culminated awakening. Right, so that what he's saying is that in this moment, there's a moment of practice right now as the Buddha is knowing the Dhamma, as there is the activity of hearing coming and going. That is a moment of practice. And that is a moment of realization right now. They're not separate. They're happening right now. It's not one happens and then the other, because then we have this linear thing. Because in this moment, that's the Buddha knowing the Dharma, Kuan Yin knowing the Dhamma. He describes that traps and snares can never reach it. If you understand this, you are completely free. You are like the dragon when she gains the water, like the tiger when she enters the mountain. What is it just to get a feeling, sense of that, moment after moment? And then he gives a description to really clarify what's going on. Two different places. He says, there is unsurpassable practice, continuous and sustained. It is the circle of the way and it is never cut off. And in this circle, there is aspiration, practice, awakening, and nirvana. And there's not a moment's gap between them. And then another place he says, and there are those realizing beyond realization. How to understand this. So instead of starting over here on the right and going over here to the left, it just happens right now. There's a moment of practice and realization. And then there's one who goes beyond practice and realization. And then in this moment, there's another moment of practice and realization and a going beyond that. So it all happens right now. There's no place to go. So exhausting to try to go somewhere. So oppressive when it's all happening right now. I think this is important to remember because I feel like I have to break the bad news to you. I think it's okay with the other teachers. But there's no enlightenment party at the end of this retreat. (laughs) No certificates, no little badges, I know. (laughs) 
So I invite you, if it fits for you, to play around with these stories. The story of nobility, birthright, the story of practice and realization happening right now. Playing with Kuan Yin, knowing the Dhamma right now, the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. And most importantly, seeing, seeing the dynamic of becoming so that we can step out of this quality of unworthiness really for all beings. So may this practice of of stepping out of unworthiness lead to the liberation of ourselves and all beings. Thank you. Let's sit just for a moment here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.